think about a, a Venn diagram, like where things overlap, that's where your mm -hmm. passion and your excellence overlap, right? That's your vagina of amazingness. And I want everyone focusing on being in their vagina of amazingness. But who's the clitoris in this vagina? Is, this, is right. that what you are? So I just put other people into vagina. I'm gonna have to ask my wife what all these things are, but. I write down these attributes about what people are passionate about and what gets them fired up and then what key attributes they show. And so as I'm moving through and working through things, I ask and I say, I've known you for two years and here are the things that I see you're really good at. Here's the project we have coming up. Do you want to work with me on this? So that's what Tom Brady does, but his is the Dick Venn diagram. Fuck that noise. Uh, I'm intrigued. Well, welcome to Two and a Half Jews. So we have Liz Mason. Why don't you tell us, who, give us a little background on yourself. Um, yeah, absolutely. Your I'm Liz Mason. And then we I, can ask more detail. I'm going to go on mute now. <laughs> Mark. Perfect. That's probably a good place for you. So about myself, I graduated with two degrees, one in accounting, one in finance. I'm Liz Mason. I'm the CEO and founder of High Rock Accounting. We launched in the cloud, stayed in the cloud ever since. We do a lot of fundraising with clients, CFO type services with the thought that we could utilize badass technology to support the humans and give people back work life happiness. And on the Rebel Rock side, we do all of that, but with cannabis companies. So it adds in a whole other level of complication. And the tax department, we're doing outsourced tax. I am no longer the CEO of that entity. I am only the founder and advisor at the moment. And we have a wonderful woman named Christine running that, and they do outsourced tax for other cloud accounting firms, as well as wealth managers. And basically white glove, white labeled service to just plug in a tax department into firms. I'm fascinated by that. If you Google hashtag CPA world domination, you'll probably find quite a, a bit of presentations, articles I've written, things I've talked about, or just tweeting in complete arrogant state of I'm taking over the world. But effectively, the couple of initiatives I'm working on now are global strategy and acquisitions with a wonderful woman on our team named Rachel Fish. I'm working on our Nucleus program. We have different tracks. We have Nucleus Builds, which is effectively seeding baby cloud accounting services firms. And so we give them the education to take them out of public accounting mindset into how do you run your own book of business? We give them the back office support, the branding, marketing, we funnel them leads, teach them how to sell. And then they have a team of bookkeepers at their disposal so that they can really function as a CFO or a controller, depending on the size of the company they're taking on. And then we have inside of Nucleus, so that's Nucleus Builds, we have Nucleus Learn, which is just the education platform. So they can go through our training and learn how to be an entrepreneur. And then we have Nucleus Legacy, which is where we're buying out retiring accounting firms, considering the average age of an accountant in the US is upwards of 50 at the moment. There are a ton of firms that need to you know, move on and they have no plan and their plan sell for 70 cents on the dollar or hire a manager, train them up, have them take over. And quite frankly, we know that doesn't work. And when they're selling out for 70 cents on the dollar of their life's work of building this practice that somebody's undervaluing because they don't have great technology and they didn't really know how to innovate, it's sad. Like it's really depressing to the older generation. So with Legacy, we've built a 20 year plan for them to retire. And can we go back? So how'd you get into accounting? Originally? Yeah, originally. Slave labor. So I come from a long family of accountants. Remember, you throwing this word slave around, you got to remember that our people, that 
our people do have history of slaves too. I know. And, yeah. you know, Bad child slavery. labor, and they're also really good yeah. at utilizing family members in the business when you're not legally able to. He can relate. <laughs> he can relate. Okay. Yeah. So, you, so your family were CPAs? So my grandfather was a CPA. My dad was an accountant and a lawyer, although he didn't have a CPA, but he's also, he has his PhD in accounting as well. And my aunt is an accountant. She does outsourced accounting for musicians, which is always fun to hear the stories of her clients. And my uncle's a tax accountant. He's an EA. So yeah, a long line of accounting in our blood. And so as a kid, I used to help reconcile checkbooks and write checks and check off bank statements and data enter stuff and whatever needed to be done. I remember like, like a good little Jewish daughter yeah, handling like, the money. Like eight years old doing giant copies on tax returns to send out K1s to everyone. <laughs> I so, got a six-year-old and I'm teaching him about poker chips last week and, and and you actually were doing legit tax returns at eight. I got two yeah. years to for him to get there. <laughs> Yeah, you got this. It's fine. So from out of college, where did you work? Out of college, I went to work for Grant Thornton when I was 19 years old as an intern. And then I started full-time at 20. And the first training I went to was Grant Thornton, and it was in Reno, Nevada. And the first training I went to with them, the managing partner of the office forced me to use my fake ID to go out drinking with them. Did they get you a fake ID or you just had one and he made you use it? Yeah, I just had one and he made me use it. Wow. And now you're married to that manager. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's that's no. amazing. Sorry. Okay, so how long did you stay in public accounting? What made you want to start your own business? Well, I'm still technically in public accounting. Tyrock is a registered CPA firm. So. Ah, well, she got you I meant, she got you okay, okay, touche, touche. DNA is technically public accounting. Yeah, too. but how did oh, you yeah. decide that you wanted to leave a big five, I guess, Grant Thornton's fifth? Yeah, so... Uh, when I was with Grant Thornton, I had a bit of a windy road, I would say. So I started in the tax department, pounded out tax returns over and over, and I realized that it was really repetitive. So I built a little robot to automate my job. So between 2005, 2006, OCR technology back yeah. when was just developing. I built this robot to effectively take the shoebox clients, turn them into beautiful work paper packages, and then import it into the tax return. And at that point, we were still paper-based system. So then you would print it out and hand it in for review. And it saved 80% of the prep time that people were taking previously. Cause I took out all of the manual data entry points and I streamlined the entire process. And then I was running it on a secondary computer cause the IT guy at the office who really had a crush on me. So when I asked for an extra laptop, he gave it to me and I'd run this program all day and effectively spend an hour in the morning scanning a bunch of documents for easy tax returns to run through it. And then I would go do really difficult tax returns myself on the computer. And then I'd check back in on the robot and do my visual review and send it in. And at the so end of the So why do you not then, own Grant Thornton right now? <laughs> when I started as the idiot that I was, I signed rights of technology. Anything I developed Jesus. internally, they owned. So what, well, How did what was you... the name before they owned it? Because it's got to have a name. It didn't have a name, actually. It it's just a name, so little it was robot. Just rudimentary OCR, so R <laughs> it was my like. I, I called it the tax robot. <laughs> okay. How did you learn how to code? How did you learn how to make a whatever you made? 
in 2005 or six, shit. Well, my sister is a data scientist. And so I had exposure to a lot of programming as a little kid. And then secondarily, it was visual basic programming, which I don't really count as programming. It's the easiest of the easy. It's what my mom did. I mean, it's simple logic. Yeah. If you can do complex Excel you formulas, you can program in visual basic to have oh, and then have it do up. things. And then the complicated part was hooking in the OCR technology into the Excel. And that was just, I mean, that was also a visual basic script that I wrote and then hosted outside. That is so fucking cool. That's okay. And so that's you, early. So you did that for Grant Thornton. Yeah. Then they like subsequently put me on their national tax process and tools team. And I moved down to Phoenix, Arizona with them to help implement that little robot. It only lasted two years, partially because they ended up moving to an actual paperless system, which I was on the team that implemented that at Grant Thornton. And that was a thankless job with bosses that did not care at all. And so I left and went to work for our Simulagy and went back into normal tax. So you went to RSM, like why, so why did you leave Grant Thornton? Yeah. So theoretically doing process and tools for a national firm, especially I was, I was given that opportunity at 23 years old. That was huge, right? That was my dream job. I was super excited about it. Everything I ever wanted. Right. And then I went into it and the people were miserable. Just a couple of the people on the team had literally no souls and would throw you under the bus for everything. I was traveling probably 25 days out of 30. I was supposed to go to firms in the Midwest and the South and tell them they had to implement these tools and get on paperless systems. Do you know what it's like to be a 23 year old like woman and especially a Jewish woman going to the South and the Midwest telling 60 year old white Christian <laughs> partners what to do? Do you know what happens? That's a lot of yelling and a lot of inappropriate conversation, uncomfortable. It was miserable and I got screamed at and called inappropriate things and objectified sexually in ways I was very uncomfortable with. Yeah. Yeah, sounds about right. Let me just ask this one question. 13 years later, because you were what, 23? Yeah. Now that at that point, that was your dream job. Do you look back at that and laugh? No, no, that's not my dream job anymore. I am happy I did it. I learned about large scale implementations, design, change management, process improvement. I learned way more on how to code efficient tools. I built out a whole suite of tools for them and that was fun. I got to fix problems. That's what I love doing is fixing problems in creative ways. But I learned I also hated big firm cultures. I did not agree with the way that they worked in general. I watched so many partners be just miserable with their lives and working ridiculous amount of hours when they'd already made partner. You own the part of this company and you're still working 70 hours, like doing all the, the client work. It was and like, they, they were mid-level like managers. It. Do they think they like doing it? Do they act like they enjoy it? Or Not do they it. complain about it? <laughs> yeah. No, I know. Like, do they bitch about like, what the fuck is the end game? Yeah. Well, it's brainwashing into this is what you have to want. This is if you're if you don't want this, if you don't push towards this, you're not successful. Right. Some of the partners I used to work for, like we have a there's 32 people on my team and there are still partners I used to work for that were mentors of mine that like to say, oh, Liz went and started a lifestyle business. 
And I'm like, bitch, please, this is not a lifestyle business. But do you give a shit what they even think or what they call it? Fuck them. Oh, no, I don't really care. But the point being, like, if you do something different or innovative, people will just not believe it's good enough because in that terrible public accounting culture, if you don't want to be partnered a big firm, you're not good enough. What we're talking about right now is the reason change happens. People like you. This is why industries change. And this is because people think differently and because there is a better way to do everything. Uh, and there's going to be a better way to the, to the problems you solved. And when that becomes commonplace, there's going to be new problems and there's going to be better ways and somebody else is going to come. You know what I mean? So this oh, is absolutely. where we are right now is, is an issue. It, knowledge work in general, it's an issue too. I don't want to interrupt more. No, you're so, good. I mean, that's- so how, yeah. well, how'd you jump from RSM to starting your own firm? Yeah. So I went to work for a local firm for a year. I followed an audit partner who was a mentor of mine, um, hoping that the local firm would give more flexibility in innovation. They did not. It was the complete opposite. I was lower level than I had ever been before. It was so, so much worse. And at the same time, I wasn't learning or progressing and I wasn't working on interesting clients and any idea I had for innovation was shot down immediately. So I ended up leaving and I took about a month off to decide what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And in that month, I went to AICPA Leadership Academy and had a lot of really great conversations. What came out of that was this idea that I could actually utilize all cloud-based tools while taking care of people and considering not just physical, but mental health of team members and also service clients in a new way, right? What we're all doing with MRR and putting them on cool tech and making it as efficient as possible and effectively increasing our profit margins just by being more valuable to them. How do you like actually make that jump? So when you started your firm, it was just you. Did you have a, an employee? Did, how'd you start? Yeah. So no, I actually had two partners when I started, one who I went to college with um, and another who um, I knew through that whole university network. And we started the frame together, the three of us. Neither one of them lasted very long. As, as Why part- didn't they last long? The first one, I think it was a skill mismatch. What we needed and what he had wasn't right and so he left really early on and the second one i honestly don't really know where his head was at but he went from wanting to scale and grow the way that i am and and have been to deciding he just wanted to do all the work and he didn't want any employees and he was gonna go get two hundred thousand dollars of business a year service it all and just be happy and that was very much a misalignment of long-term goals so you touch on growth and that's how you are, that's how you've always been. And just to be clear, you're a growth person, but why do you grow? Is it just to make more money? Okay, for world domination. All right, what's What's the the end game? Once you dominate the world, what are you gonna do next? Become the genie? (laughs) I mean, no, my ultimate goal is actually to do innovative business models and make waves in the profession. So, Hyrock, we're growing quickly. We will be cross-border. There's a few other reasons why we'll be cross-border. And, and Wait, what does cross-border mean? Yeah, what does cross-border mean? Yeah, so right now we have an office in Australia. We are working on a Canadian acquisition. And then we're also working on building out 
a practice that does advisement for entities that are functioning in multiple countries. So we have a lot of clients in Europe, we have a lot of clients in Canada, Australia, and the US. And so they're cross-border operations. And we found that there's like a key niche to service these people, but nobody's doing it because it's really expensive to maintain that cross-border if you don't scale it really quick. And so we're trying to come in and scale that practice in a way that'll give them the service they need. So why do you have to scale really quick in order to maintain that? Just because you need the funding? Yeah, well, I mean, launching a new country, if you're going to bootstrap every six months is pretty expensive, right? So you have to scale that to be able to have economies of scale. But effectively, we'll be the first small boutique cross-border tax shop, and we'll add that into the tax department, which gives us the ability to offer international taxes prepared under one roof as a white labeled service to other accounting firms. Yeah. And accounting firms would fucking love that and pay a lot for it and because they could charge a lot for it too. There's a metaphor I'm seeing here. There's high rock. What mountain are you on right now? Climbing the second mountain. Has it, have you guys heard that or heard that phrase? I mean, just life in general, whatever. I'm not going to bastardize this. I thought you guys would just know what the second mountain is fulfilling that purpose that you've that's been driving you i'm sure at some point you are good you're continuing to grow and continuing to move all that forward at what point did you realize that you had already passed some of your goals you may have already conquered the second mountain i don't know what that is that might be transcendence or I don't know. I, I'm getting a little too deep with it, but a little bit. I'm not high enough for this conversation. Yeah, that's the point. Effectively, I think goals are always a moving target, right? Like, yes, you can write down specific goals and achieve those and check them off your to-do list. And that's great. But if they're not evolving, then you're not growing as a human continuously. And I refuse to not grow as a human. And so what I'm passionate about is creating new business models and building it out and making it work, improving everyone that says that's never going to work, that it does. So the tax robot was the first time you started all that. And now it's the tax department that you've also let go. You had to let go of the tax robot and you're kind of letting go of the tax department, but you're going to bring it back in. But well, like I mean, give a shit about tax. I don't like tax. I never have. Um, I'm good Ackerman at it. Loves tax. Yeah, I think we we are all good at it because we, we know. I more. wouldn't say you're good at tax. <laughs> I actually gave a shit. What? About it. I'm interested in your so. So you've basically created a company that you white made him speechless, and he's usually a talker. <laughs> well, no, you you literally have to speak the whole time. <laughs> so I haven't said a word. This so you're outsourced. You're basically white labeling tax returns for financial advisors and other cloud accounting or bookkeeping firms. How do you go, how do you communicate with the clients? Are you communicating with the clients or are they just sending you tax forms? How does that work? So our team does it all. I don't do any of it. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. But, but, you know, I know. Yeah. Clarify too, yeah. No, so we utilize Canopy for our tax 
for the tax department. And then each firm is set up as a client in there as their client portal. And then there's subfolder structures set up for their clients. Now, some of them have Zaps pulling information out and sending it over to whatever their file share is with their client. But that's primarily where our communication happens with their team. I know we're on some of our clients' Slack channels or Microsoft Teams accounts just to be able to ask the detailed questions of the accounting staff as things are going. But what ends up happening is especially the wealth managers, not so much, but those are mostly 1040s that we're doing for them, but the, and schedule C businesses. But when you think about like cloud accounting practices or bookkeeping firms that don't want to do the tax piece of it, they know all the answers. And it's really easy to just hook into their QBO or their zero and pull out the detailed GL information that's needed. Where do you keep all of that? I mean, because it does sound like you're not going to be able to make them all on one system, Microsoft Teams, however, however fuck many systems people use. Where do you keep all that? Is that in Canopy? In there? Yeah, so yeah. each of our clients has their own direct contact and that direct contact is the one that maintains it. And then we have backup of all that. We use one password to keep the passwords for what those logins are. So we create a tax at email account that's ours. And then we just have that forward into our general tax department emails. And then everything else is done on Canopy and all the file storage is there as well. Yeah. And have you scaled from anything to Canopy? How long have you been using that? (laughs) I'm interested in this. Yeah, so we started using it at the end of 2020 to set it up and get it ready for this year being the first year that we're all in on their platform. Honestly, our the CEO of the tax department, Christine, vetted a bunch of technology. We put together what the ultimate workflow process was and how, how we can make it efficient to interact with their teams. And that one just checked all the boxes and had a really slick interface to be able to do clients in this way. And it's was mostly it more like- versatile if they're using Microsoft or Google? or anything else? Yeah. I mean, they can back up the files to whatever their internal file storage is. And prior to this, we had been using their internal file storage, which was just not scalable for us. We couldn't maintain that. We can maintain the chat apps, but 50 million different file storage. Well, yeah, the chat apps is what concerns me. So many different ones. I just don't know how you set up systems to make sure they're not just checking shit all day. How do you uh, charge for that per return? Yeah, so we we have four different buckets effectively. And so the first one doesn't cost anything from a monthly perspective, but then you pay for every return. The second one is a monthly charge, which includes some tax planning and consulting, and then a discount on the annual filing fees for each individual return. And then it just goes up from there. And the packages include more with the base monthly and then have bigger discounts as you I love that you're selling to firms the same way that we sell to clients. You're Mm -hmm. selling to other tax firms and a lot of them probably don't even price that way and they price hourly and shit and they're just, they're probably confused by your pricing, especially because you're doing shit that they do too. Well, and because of that, we've built out some marketing materials for them and we talked to them about like, how do you explain this to a client? How did they figure out what their profit margin should be? Like, I want to talk about the learning nucleus learning too. I just think you've got to figure it out. And there is no franchise model with, I don't see yeah. a franchise model. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you're um, not calling it a franchise at all. It's not. And it's not, I've actually been through the legal review with the franchise laws to make sure that our agreements violate that. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
Uh, no, that's not what we're doing. It's more, it's close, it's more closely aligned to what's happening in the insurance industry. And so if you think about the statutory employees of Mass Mutual, right? They're independent agents, they sell a product, they have underwriting handled, they have office space sometimes handled, all their branding, marketing, it's all taken care of. They do um, what they do best, right? They're gonna flourish. And they don't need employees either. Exactly. They can run it how they want and and you've you've done that for them. And this is this is a way for somebody to not have to work at a firm. They could create they can take one of their closets, turn it into an office, and run their entire practice right out of there. Yep. Go move to Asheville, North Carolina and live in a cabin and just do that. People can do whatever the hell they want and they're totally legit and they're backed by a big ass rock, you know? Yeah. So, um, Jesus Christ. What the fuck is the vacuum going on in the background? Whose house is that? Yeah, people are cleaning our. Uh... Why do you still have an office? I'm in my office. So, I'm interested in how you. Because it seems like you're very good at delegating and let people run. You're, you're very high level. Scott's very high level, too. So, how. And, and I think a big problem with most CPA firms is that they're, they are very micromanaging. So how were you able to go from two partners to 30 people and you're kind of overseeing high level and trying to grow the business in different ways? How were you yeah. able to do that? So the real magic happened after the original partners left. And then I partnered up with my current partner, Melissa, who was integrator number one. And I was able to trust her implicitly to not only synthesize these big picture ideas I was coming up with and make them better within one sentence, but to take it build out detailed plans and then execute on those. And when I saw how much better she was than me at actually making my crazy ideas happen and come to life, we created very clear roles, right? And so internally, I am very clearly the visionary. I function in that role. I figure out what's next. I ask the universe for whatever the fuck we want. And most of the time we get it. You She's can like- You articulate your vision. You articulate it to her. She's aligned with you and she yeah. can run with it. You can get it 10% of the way there, but that's the most important 10%. Yep. The rest of the 90%, you don't want to fuck with, but you figured that out early. And but I'm only you need, really every visionary needs an integrator. Otherwise, yeah. they're just a crazy person. Yeah, right? exactly. A visionary without an integrator is a crazy person. Oh a visionary with an integrator changes the world. Yeah, well, it well, also depends on how much money you have. The difference yeah, between so someone who's eccentric yes. and someone who's crazy is how much money they have. Yes, so money, but that's why it's about money. It's not about money, but it is. It, it, all of it, everything we're doing is about money because that is, that's at least what the world uses as a barometer. Yeah. So the magic started happening, Jason, to move back to your question in 2016, <laughs> and then we scaled. From 2016, we had four people on the team to now at 30. And then at the beginning of 2019, we started launching more brands and ideas and started spinning these things up. And Melissa started taking a more active role in our cannabis practice and learning the technical side of accounting to oversee it and all of that, because that was clearly not what I wanted to do. I just wanted to win those clients and help them fix things and then back out. And then from there started hiring more integrators. So for each big picture project I have going on, I have an integrator on the team working on it. And so how to like do you, circle when you back. hire now, yeah. obviously you can't say looking for integrators. So you must have very good hiring processes to find the different types of hires or do you from, do this from within? Both, combination of both. I also have 
since the beginning of time, written down when I talk to people that I like and I align well with, and I think that we could work well in some way, I write down their key attributes. So what I perceive to be what they excel at, which gets into my whole conversation around the vagina of amazingness, which is where your passion, like think about a a Venn diagram, like where things overlap, that's where your Mm -hmm. passion and your excellence overlap, right? That's your vagina of amazingness. And I want everyone focusing on being in their vagina of amazingness. But who's the clitoris in this vagina? Is that right. what you are so, in that vagina of amazingness? I just put other people into vagina. I'm going to have to ask my wife what all these things are. But answer the question, coming full circle back from there, I write down these attributes about what people are passionate about and what gets them fired up and then what key attributes they show. And so as I'm moving through and working through things, I ask and I say, I've known you for two years and here are the things that I see you're really good at. Here's the project we have coming up. Do you want to work with me on this? So that's what Tom Brady does, but his is the Dick Venn diagram, but he actually <laughs> does do that. That's why he excels. And and we can talk about Tom Brady and bring that shit up, but he is fucking the best. I, I, I don't want to debate it anymore. He is the best, but that's what he does is he takes people and gets the best out of them. He takes people that are passionate and he will feed them the ball and he will do that because you, if you know how to lead, you will get people rowing in the same direction and in the right direction and they can take ownership in that shit. What we were talking about last week where you're saying you want staff to take ownership to the client relationship. She's having staff take ownership of the fucking firm relationship where the firm is going. That's, well, that's... I would also never call anyone on my team a staff because oh. I feel like that actually creates more walls than it does knock them down. So, so what do I use? What do I replace that with? Because I have team got members. So okay. do you have do you have titles in your firm? We do have titles. They're all made up titles. I made them up. I was really drunk when I did. I think I had like a bottle of tequila and I was like, well, we're not calling people associates or managers. Fuck that noise. Fuck we're going to call them. Specialists and gurus and masters. I'm intrigued. So, how do you are you having a lot of success of people moving up in the firm, going from? So, how do you? I guess when you're hiring for the lowest level, are you looking at them to think that they could be an integrator one day down the road? No. Or are you hiring them first? You said so it happens hiring. over about two years. You're, you're cultivating this list. So you must have this big ass workbook or spreadsheet that you've got people's names on and you're just continually making a, a vagina until it's full, right? Or I no? mean, it's in a one note, but yes. Okay. I haven't hired at the lowest level in like a few years. But what I look for is intelligence, alignment to values and vision and tenacity. I want people that are going to go above and beyond. We like rock stars on our team. We like the right kind of lazy, which is the efficient kind of lazy, where you try to automate everything because you don't ever want to do it manually again. I, was... I used to ask that in interviews. Are you lazy? Looking for the right kind of lazy. You know, the people that are going to build some kind of be stick to open their fridge and get it from the couch so that they never have to stand up. Those are the right kind That's of That's the awesome lazy, yeah. Yeah, but the so ones that are never going to restock Like the person fridge. who creates a secret <laughs> room in their house and no, no, nobody no. would bother them. Yeah, no, no. that's lazy. That's, that's uh-huh. like serial killer status. Definitely a different thing. For the kids. The kids uh-huh. like a secret. Uh, okay, how involved, how involved are oh, you with wow. I'm sorry. I do have kids. This is not other people's kids. <laughs> no, they can play guitar in the room. They can do you. Yeah. You put in for him, Jason. I got it. 
We're going to have to record this whole thing over again, but this is a good practice. How involved are you with clients? Or do you even deal with clients anymore? Do you deal with any part of it? I do. I have a couple of clients that I function as the CFO for. And then one of them, I think I learn as much as I help. And so it's a very good relationship for me, a guy that's been in business for 30 years, really innovative in his own space, in his own way, and an extraordinarily successful business. And it's awesome for me to have the opportunity to work with him as a CFO. And so I keep that to myself because I'm learning so much and we have that relationship. There's a few special projects here and there. We do fundraising with clients and particularly on the cannabis side. So I jump in and help with that. I do modeling work with large scale tech ventures when they're going out for stuff. So I'll jump in and help with that type of stuff. Modeling? Do you model for them? No, financial modeling. But thank you. I I only really jump in on the fun projects that I want to be involved in. Mm, That's great. So what, what, what do you think that most traditional firms, what are, what are the biggest mistakes they're making? Not respecting that they're professional service firms with a bunch of humans on their teams. I think that's number one mistake is not recognizing individuality. Can we just say money? I'm saying it's all about lining their pockets and everything else came from that for the money. And they're not even enjoying it. That's the quintessential life lesson, you know, that people never learn until they're dead or on their deathbed. Right. You get it. I actually had a regional managing partner now at RSM sit down with me before I quit and basically tell me you're choosing the hardest route possible. And I thought about that and she was like, you have an opportunity to make partner very quickly here. It's a lot of money. Yes, it's a lot of work, but it's worth it but you're choosing a route that's going to put you in the driver's seat in a way that's going to challenge you without any support system, without any safety nets, without any guarantee. Didn't you fucking love that though? Didn't that sound like the best? It did. She thought she was trying to talk me out of it and she talked me into it inadvertently. Lazy people can find leverage. If you leverage your time doing the right things. I mean, I like the direction you're going and that you can use your time wisely if it's your own time. Right. Yeah. If, if you own it and it's not other people's time, you got to fucking protect your time. And when people talk about that, that's legit. Everybody's vying for your time. Clubhouse is vying for your time. Fucking all of these places. Is that Everybody... what's vying for your time today? Yeah. I want to ask you more. Is it, is it Nexus? Did I, I totally. Nucleus. Nucleus. Okay. Yeah. I think this is a genius idea. How did you, you come up with this? You're an insurance model. You're doing all the back end stuff and you're basically creating these people who don't know how to run a firm very well. You're taking that away and they're basically being the salesperson, the client contact, but you're doing all the back end work. Mm-hmm. So how did, how did you decide that that could work for accountants and how, how are you modeling that? This like is the reason why you're our sponsors this week. How do you sell this to like, who's your target demographic? Yeah. So actually, that's a really interesting question. Our target demographic when we launched was CPA between 28 and 40 that was sitting at that manager to senior manager level, didn't want to make partner, thought they could go build their own book. They've built a good network. They have good skills. They can share that. That was our persona we were were going after. Now that's kind of morphed because most of the interest we get from people that jumped out on their own 
did it for a year, failed, and are like, I still want to work for myself, but I don't think I have the skills to run a business. I love that so much. I love what you're doing. You just are able to put trust in people and run with that. I'm in awe of it. I think it's so fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. Because I didn't even know about the learning or the retiree one. Yeah, uh, well, it the retiree one, but whatever you call it, legacy, yeah. Legacy. Yeah. So I'm going to jump back to Jason, your original question, which started with how did I come up with that model? So the build model was effectively me thinking about, so all of the angst I had sitting in public accounting, I had doubts that I could run a firm well. And so me sitting there frustrated at a manager level, I looked at, so RSM had these reports that basically showed you all the revenue you brought in, all of your overhead. And they did like, they actually gave you all the salary allocations. Plus they gave you an overhead allocation for the office, for use of space, for teams, all of it was built in. And then they showed you your actual profitability to the firm, which was an amazing calculation. And I loved the fact that they gave me that data, but I was sitting there at a $90,000 a year salary and I was making, I was netting after all my costs, I was netting the firm 500,000. And I was like, what the That's fuck? Fun. Yeah. <laughs> I had doubts that I could build a practice. I had doubts that I was old enough that people would trust me. Like all of these doubts held me back from just jumping but, out on my own earlier. Right. Don't those doubts build up your confidence in those areas because that's what you're worried about. So then you want to become better at sales and you want to do something better or no? Well, I was actually good at sales. I just didn't know it yet. Yeah. I think accountants go through very similar experiences when they're in public accounting at that manager level or that senior manager level, or even senior associate level where they feel like they're doing more for the firm than the firm is doing for them. And the top level think maybe I could do this better on my own. Right. And then the very few of the maybe 15% that even think about entrepreneurship, maybe 2% actually go, I'm going to do that because I'm crazy enough. I'm arrogant enough. And mm -hmm. I'm foolhardy enough mm -hmm. to think, I can do this better and I can figure out how to run a business and I'm going to throw all my finances into this and like, it's not arrogance when you can back it up though. People would say it's arrogance. No, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I also okay. don't think arrogance deserves the negative connotation that comes with it. I think it's combined with no self-awareness. That's where it can be very bad. If you're emotionally um, intelligent, then it's not a bad thing. Um, if you're not a narcissist, then it's not a bad thing. If you're not yeah. a sociopath, oh, then yeah, it's yeah. not a bad thing. But sociopaths, they're very hard to deal with. They're the ones that yeah. you can't suss out when you're hiring. I like your three qualities to hire. Those are perfect. But yeah. sociopaths can, can cut their way through a lot of that. Oh, absolutely. So it's really like I was targeting that extra. So maybe it's 2% that actually does it and jumps out on their own. And it's 15% that's thinking it. So that extra 13% that doesn't have the confidence or doesn't have the strategy or whatever it is they need to get over the hump of entrepreneurship, but that ideal sounds good to them. I think they need to be able to see that. That needs to be presented to them too, because then they can see the outline and see where they can be and how easy it is. At the end of the day, that's what everybody really wants is the autonomy, just like an insurance company and everything else. So so what, what stuff are you doing? Let's just say it's me and I'm like, fuck this place. So if you join Nucleus, what is Nucleus doing and what is the CPA's role? 
Yeah, so Nucleus Builds, effectively, the person comes in, goes through our training program, which is designed to take people through basic concepts of entrepreneurship and get them thinking in an open mindset and a growth mindset and moving through a lot of the core public accounting training that people come to the table with. And then once we go through that, we do coaching with them and we help them with sales. We basically handhold them through their first year and help them build up their book of business. Now, the other side of this, which is truly where some of the brilliance comes in, at least in my opinion, Mm -hmm. is as we're taking in legacy accounts and we're working through that transition with retiring accountants, we're matching them to nucleus bills candidates. So they're... So what are you, so you're obviously training them. And then once they get their book of business, what are you doing for them? Yeah. Yeah. So personally, I'm doing the coaching and helping them. I mean, by you as in Nucleus, not like. What the company is doing. So what Hyrock is doing on the back end is all of their bookkeeping is helping them do systems implementations, helping them onboard clients, being a virtual assistant, making sure they're taken care of. Truly the, the Nucleus Build partners are functioning as a controller or a CFO to these clients. And we're doing everything else below them. Are you doing a lot of, is it a systematized process, but you still need people? Like, do you still have staff that's running a lot of this show and handling um, the handholding and everything? If you're scaling a system and growing, then you've got your business side of it to think about too. And you've got your system that you have to have in place to scale this. And so- Yeah, but they function as a partner of Hyrox. So they're in our systems, they have their own team, it's all built in. Oh, no, no. I mean, like within, within High Rock, when you're, when you're scaling them, the people that join Nucleus, yeah, you're coaching them, but you've also got your people, like, is there other employees at Nucleus that is training them, that is their hand holders? Or yeah, that- so my integrator on the Nucleus project is Brandy Jordan, and she's phenomenal. She has an educational design background as well as a sales background and has also done more on a coaching side and has designed big picture programs like that before. So she's been the perfect fit to come into this role and help us. It just like, even just with her instructional design background, being able to build out this education platform in a way that mirrors a master's program, having that talent on the team to do it in-house was really amazing. Yeah, yeah, because that's something very hard to pull off. And you worked on the systems first, or did you let them come? Like, I mean, I guess, you know, did you create all these systems for you internally before? Yeah, no, everything's created. So we've actually paused the the build um, cohort. So we wanted five people in our first cohort. So we're doing groups of five so that you have a peer group to work with as you grow. We make everyone go through a very rigorous application. So we're weeding people out because I don't want to set people up for failure. I don't want to just take their money. We're building building people that can do this, that want this. And if they don't come in with enough experience, if they don't come in with the right mindset or the right personality, it's just not going to apply. I love it. That's so cool. What do you think your biggest, what's the biggest challenge in your multiple firms that you have? So... I think the biggest challenge is always people and professional services, making sure people are taken care of, making sure we have the right people in time for the work that's coming, making sure we're training people in the right direction. We're putting the right people in charge of the other people. Is that where all your anxieties end up? That's where mine end up is others, other people. Yeah, no, and deals. Like I get dragged into a lot of M&A stuff and then I don't know, that ends up with anxiety, I think. With M&A stuff, like 
you personally are acquiring businesses or it's your firm? Clients, like mostly stuff, clients. clients. Yeah, okay. mostly work with clients, fundraising for them, helping them sell, helping them get ready for a sale to private equity or done a few IPOs, that kind of stuff. But it's mostly that type of M&A work that just, that's where my personal anxiety comes from. And then sure. people, I would say is secondary, but mostly on the side that I want to make sure everyone's taken care of. Yeah. I, I feel that that's what, that's what we've been talking about too. And then, so I want to, I want to ask why you brought up the first thing was I'm making this and the company's making this, what did that domino into or why, why was that the first thing you brought up when you were looking at the value? Cause we were just talking about this last week and mm -hmm. we were talking about leveraging and finding the best ways to get the most out of your employees without them feeling like that the way you felt. It's okay. not just lining somebody's pockets, right? So it's about money though. I still say that that's about money. Is it not? Um, I'm sure Stop. one of them is yeah. about money. No, but. <laughs> the question is, how do you motivate your people to no, do the best No, 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 no. I'm asking you personally, when you first saw that, was that what made you want to change things or the way that they are? What was it that that triggered, I guess? I'm not sure I understand the question. Okay, so you saw here's how much I'm making the firm, right? Yes. Yeah. How did you feel at that point? Like a slap in the face. And that was just, I think, the like icing on the cake of me being frustrated, right? I mean, witnessing so much corporate waste and inefficient time and people getting basically rewarded for not doing their jobs, right? If they took a long time on a return, it was imbalanced and it didn't feel good. Everything that you said, it wasn't about you. It was about everything that could be done better. It wasn't just, I should be making more fucking money because they're making this much. I guess I'm trying to make a point in you are elevating and getting to where you are because that's the way you think. You're not thinking about yourself the first thing when you see that, but that was, oh. seemed to be a trigger for you. Like that was the first thing you brought up. Great. It's like when you're working at a firm, when you see it's such a disparity when when the firm is making five hundred thousand dollars off you and you're only making ninety thousand that's when you feel like it's fucked up and if then, she was making yeah. two hundred fifty thousand and it's five hundred thousand yeah. that's a different story that's right. it's the problem but they well, couldn't pay me that money which is not a motivating factor to me it yeah. will piss me off it will not motivate me yeah exactly that's what i was trying to explain to you scott is i mean you want to make money but the ultimate goal is you want to help people you want to solve problems like for liz i think it's she likes solving complex problems this is still a reality in all firms liz your firm too if you take one of your employees right now and show them how much they're producing how are they going to feel they all see it they know right. it of course they all see it and know it but what is it that you're doing that makes them she because she's like treating them fairly she's compensating right. them fairly right they, they get paid a percentage of their it's production. not that complicated they just, it's really yeah, not that we, complicated. I, we're still talking about money and respect but the top of it is respect so forget well, all the rest i also think there's a generational shift so me being one of the older millennials on the like gen Elder y yeah, yeah, right. There was still some money motivation inside of that generation, but you take it to Gen X and it's all money motivated. You take it down to like true millennials or Gen Z and they don't give a shit about money. They care about their impact. So what you're saying about donating to small businesses and growing those small businesses, like that means more to people than their salary. What 
means more to my team and there's like a threshold, right? And I think the threshold's right around $80,000. If people are over that, so like hopefully most of our management team should be, they don't care about the incremental dollars at all. Like the difference between 80 and 120 in salary. Well, the right person, the there's right a huge person gap. doesn't. The, no, there's the a threshold. So yeah. statistically, like if you're oh, looking okay, at this right. across the board from like an economic statistics standpoint, people making over 80,000 do not show increased motivation for incremental dollar increases. There's a big gap there, right? So you have someone making 20,000, they're going to show tons of extra motivation for small incremental increases in pay because they're sitting below the poverty line. And so it's a, it's a diminishing marginal returns when you look at it mathematically. So the team here cares that they're helping small businesses succeed. They care that they're able to help their clients push through and get PPP loans. They care more about the work that they're doing and the impact they're having on the community than what their dollar to the purpose. Because they're getting paid more, because they're getting paid enough to, to not have to worry about all that other shit. It's about money until it's not. So it's about money until they hit the threshold where they can live comfortably and they're good and they can have an impact on other people. But if they're not making that money, then it's about money. And that you said it, right? So it's it's about money until it's not. Well, I even at that level, like the money makes an incremental difference in motivation mostly because the people can't live comfortably and they have economic stresses and it's, you know, but over, much more difficult. Yeah. But over that it just becomes their own personal issues. If they if they're at eighty thousand they really want to make more they can earn more sorry i don't mean to i don't even mean to make that sound negative i'm just saying that that it is about the money until it's not That's i think yeah. if you set goals in your firm based on money like they have to hit certain money goals then that's not what they're motivated on necessarily they're motivated on helping clients and like servicing their clients and if you set the goals that way and you focus your north star which is what we talked about before on like for, for me, it's servicing the client. How can we make the client the best service? If you focus on that and take away all the other bullshit, then- Okay, so scorecard, right? Scorecard numbers- Don't, no, 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 us is not how, a scorecard. But how well, a client, how well their clients are doing. Not how well they're doing, but not how that, well their clients that, are doing like, year over year. But that's not necessarily like, I, I don't think- you They can, care about their clients too. Yeah. But I don't think you can. They judge. are looking at numbers. I mean, there's other circumstances. But... I, one thing I talk about Liz a lot is like measuring too much. I think accounting firms measure everything. I mean, time. I obviously keeping track of time doesn't make any sense. But like they measure all these things, and they think that motivates, and it just pisses your team off because it's taking away from time that they could be spending with their client, and sure. that's what they want to do. So I disagree with you at a large scale. I think that some of the measurements and tracking is able to give the data back to the people that are doing it so that they're aware and can self-correct. But if you- tell, only... us, tell us the data that you- No, no, aware and self-correct so they can optimize though and they exactly. can be better. If they're not aware of what's going on, they don't pay attention. So I can say like from personal experience, we started with not tracking any time at all and then effectively doing allocations to figure out if we were profitable on clients, but one of the things we found as we became a larger team was that our lower level team members had no concept of how much time they were spending doing basic activities. The, they had no, like our pros, which are mostly interacting with clients, had no concept of how much time they spent on the phone with a the client. Their estimates compared to the actuals the month later were like 
completely wrong. Like they weren't yeah. even in the right ballpark. And when we started showing them some of that time information, they were able to say, oh, like there is no reason I need to have seven hours of calls with this client every month. Like I can streamline this. I can make agendas. I can send emails. Like I can fix this. Right. And they did. And our clients became so much more efficient. They optimized. Like yes. Yeah. Okay, so what is, so what are the that's things... my argument to just measure time. It's not for billing and it's not for money, no. but it's so they can optimize and measure and plan their week. Like I, I love the fact that if they can see what's on their plate forecasting, I don't even look at it from so backwards. What do you... I'm looking at it forwards. I'm looking I want at to know it. what you measure. Yeah, what do you measure? Yeah. So on our team, we do measure time by client. I, I think we like round to the nearest 15 minutes <clears throat> to be honest and nobody expects it to be perfect that's not we don't care about the like one minute increment and then we measure like in scope versus out of scope work yeah. clearly we try to bill for all of the out of scope work which is important because our clients ask for a lot we work with a lot of like mid-market companies that just have a lot of extra needs or like sometimes in the middle of whatever yeah sometimes they'll have like internal people that do stuff that are like i'm too busy this month can you guys pick it up and our team at like before tracking any of this just did it and didn't even and we have super happy clients but that's not profitable <laughs> and so we track in scope out of scope we track the types of out of scope work we're doing so if we're consistently jumping in and doing like month end accruals for a client that we don't do their clothes for, maybe we talk to them about adding on their clothes management because clearly like they're understaffed for that internally, right? And we track the types of questions that come in. So are they emailing about like basic bookkeeping or are they emailing about big picture strategy questions? Like what are, is it payroll questions they have all the time? Do we need to introduce our HR team? Cause we have- so how, do you track, well. how do you track that? How do you track the questions? Yeah, so that's actually more our team tracking it than we like, we don't have that piece of it automated at all. But I think we can do that in carbon now because of the, the new team. search. I think in, in carbon, carbon can but, do that. So the time, so they're, so they're keeping a timesheet are they keeping a timesheet or how are you doing it? Are you having it's, a, it's like, through timers attached to our practice management. So effectively, like it's a button. Carbon has one. Have. Carbon has a floater. They open up a client, they open up a work item, you click it button, it runs, you, you stop, you move on to the other one, it runs that. It's it's super simple. I think I was all for it, but I got pushed back on it from so many other directions. I just um, I'm letting my ops, my integrator do it, and he wants to go with it. I actually turned it off and let him make the decision since I got too much pushback. And now he's, he's, but we're doing it to forecast. I see why you did it. I, yeah. It I mean, we also do it do to budget. We do it to figure out like how much time people should be spending on things so that we know what their workload is. That's right, the other right, right. side. Because yeah. if you see that they're, uh, I don't know, there's just so much more visibility <laughs> and it's so low it's not a lot of work for them it's not like filling out timesheets and they know that we're not doing it for the purpose we're doing it to better them we're doing it so they I can know. i, I feel like at any time you track time it's just time is our most finite resource money i don't think money is as valuable as time well money buys time that that's it? that's real deep <laughs> no, I mean, that's why this, the, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's about time and money and it's not about time and money, but it always is. That's why I you think, I think you can money. figure out management strategies to not have to keep track of time. I'm sure there's ways 
can do it. I'm absolutely sure there is. I don't know them. I'm just trying to find somebody that agrees with me on this because I can't get most any higher level person to agree with me on it. On this, they keep track. Nobody of does. Like to me, it's about data. Like we can't scale at a massive rate without data. Yeah. Right? It's about right, knowing right. semantics. It's, it's, semantics it's about here. planning. It's We're saying the same thing. No, it's yes. It's a, so, Jason, how big is your team? We have 30. 30. And at the end of the year, how do you figure out who's actually productive? He just so, knows off the top of his head. <laughs> so we keep track of every work that they do has a budget. So like when we price a client, we do fixed price agreements. We charge everything based on a, the scope of work. And that's all tracked. So I, I was actually looking at that today because I can pull up the work schedule and see what we're charging and what each person is charging. Now, what the, it does take a lot of training on your team, especially the out-of-scope stuff. And I can definitely see when they first start, because they don't really know anything, like how much time they should be spending on that. So it takes a lot more management and handholding on that and like checking in and being like, what are you working on and stuff like that. I don't think there's a perfect answer to keeping, to making, to tracking it right. If you have a fixed fee on your project um, and you have one person assigned to it, do you have another person reviewing it? Do you have other people helping? How does that work get allocated out? So it depends on it, it depends on the work. Normally we have like we could have multiple people on a project. So like we might have a bookkeeper doing the bookkeeping work. So that's in carbon. That's which its own used. project. Yeah. That's its own work. So you there have nine dollar amounts allocated to each piece of the project to different people. Yeah. Sure. I mean that's it's not that yeah. it's not that so there could be if it's a very complex something. There could be where it gets allocated to one person and somebody's helping, but we don't compensate based off of what Revenue. each person charges. But she we asked do in how well, how productive they are, right? What right. did you ask? Yeah, you, yep. she no, asked how you compensate. How do you yeah. measure how productive they are? Well, I I'm not really concerned a... about productive. I'm more concerned about them getting. I'm more concerned about the revenue that's being generated by the firm. And I have a firm goal, which is I want everyone to, I want to take our full-time equivalents divided by our gross revenue. I want that to be $300,000 per person. Right now we're at 165 to 170 per person. So I think we could easily get to 300. That's what I'm most concerned about. So I'm more concerned about Okay. Getting the right clients, pricing them right, and then getting our team to work on it, and then getting rid of the non... Because we, we know our non-profitable clients. Like, I don't need a timesheet to know our non-profitable clients. Liz, I'm not I, can say, I can tell you that I did I did do that and churned three quarters of a million dollars in three years of shitty clients. Because it, it, profitability is not the right word, because it's often yeah. cost. Mm -hmm. It's opportunity cost. I've been doing fixed price agreements a long enough time. I can look at a client and I can look at all the emails going back and forth. And I can be like, this is not price right. We do get so, a lot of data in carbon though. Yeah, well, what happens if you price it wrong? We adjust it next year. Sometimes you can go back to the client and be like, a lot of this is out of scope. That you, you, We started with this first thing and you want us to do- I got a pretty good idea about pricing other it wrong. Um, you know how I'm going to price now? But sometimes, but sometimes you lose on a client. But most of the time, once you get better at pricing, you win. Right. Uh, yeah, so Liz, how do you price? How do you price that? I don't even think we asked you that. 
that's a long story, but a long story. So how you figure out how productive these people are has nothing to do with individual productivity. It has everything to do with team productivity. If you're setting revenue goals for the firm and then dividing it by the number of team members and coming out with a, a goal that way, then you care more about your team functioning collaboratively to service these clients than you do about the profitability of individual engagements or the productivity of individual humans. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so that you probably have a team based approach. Very well with your culture and your growth orientation, right? Yeah. And I think that it's always a struggle. Like, Wait, so maybe you just you know, convinced me we, now to, I don't stop, think we to do, continue to stop doing time. I don't think we do it perfectly. I think if you're scaling super fast and you want to grow super fast, it's harder to manage that way because you're hiring people all the time and you got to have a lot of good processes in place, especially as you get bigger. Like, we're definitely at the stage where we need more processes and stuff. So yeah, I can definitely take for granted see, you do have good processes. But, but we're in a oh, we have good processes, but could, we need a lot more processes. The way you're growing your firm, you're trying to grow faster than us. I think. I think we're on. A, we we grow ten to fifteen percent a year gross revenue, and we hire one to two people a year, and that's kind of where we're happy now. If I was trying to scale faster like you were or are, I. Obviously, it's a different, it's a whole different ballgame. I thought it you said is. scale factor. And the stuff that you're doing is different too. Like, I'm yep. like, you've really created a niche, like these niche services that are really cool and not anything like a traditional firm. You're kind of doing yep. back office traditional firm things, but you've, you've, it's completely different than what most. I was looking to poke I mean, there's holes no other accounting in a lot of like your you shit. I was looking to find it's holes to, to poke say. into. So it's, I think it's, I think I have way more to learn from you than. <laughs> he thinks, he thought, he thought he think, knew it all. I think there's a all. lot of pieces to running firms and a lot of decisions that you make that's independent, depending on the culture and the values and the goals of independent It's like companies. an artist. It's like an artist. Right. They're all doing it right, but they're all doing it differently, right? And no, there is no right or wrong way. At the end of the day, you do still have to produce something that other people like, and you still have to be able to hire people. You still have to be able to make money. But if you're doing it in your way, it isn't wrong. Right. But what defines success is not how you get there. That's true, too. Well, uh, wait, well, let's back up on that. I mean, because there's a lot of uh, success is very subjective. So oh, no, absolutely. There is no but... real definition of success. Success is how you measure yourself. I agree with you, but I, I can also tell you when you look at somebody that you consider in your own definition successful, you don't say they're successful because of their journey. But that actually, why are you saying that? Because that's actually true, though. Well, I guess, but I mean, I'm not sure what you're saying. Yeah. I oh, I'm saying like saying where, getting, where yeah. somebody is like is more important when you're measuring success than how they got there, right? Like if we do math a completely different way and we both get to the same solution, does it really matter how we did it? No. Well, it does matter if two of you come up with four and one of us comes up with five. Well, but we're coming up with the same solution. Yeah, well, I, I, I agree with you. That now, there's more way. Yeah, I think there's a lot of good ways to run firms, especially, especially with what your goal is. And if right. your goals are different and you're trying to get to certain phases, in order to get your team to buy in and focus on that, yep. you have to well, run it slightly differently. Yeah, uh, I don't like the word buy-in, though. 
I don't know if that's see staff's a trigger word for you. I don't know buy in. I, I I feel like then you're trying to sell them into something. I feel like they want to take ownership of it too, but I don't know the Motiva- right word. motivation. Whatever. Yeah, motiva- See, I, I guess it's just soothing words that are just better than staff. <laughs> you could say whatever you want, but they still are staff. Well, I, I, not I should, if you well if you think of them like that. Sure. I don't even know what that word means. I didn't know it was a bad word. Well, well staff staff means thing. they're below you. That's like when I think yeah, but I hate team, I hate that I don't I don't ever treat myself like I'm above them at all ever like I, I never I, look over them. Power. What words have power? What's what does that mean? That means that the the verbiage that you use, the way that you talk about things, and the tone that you use, all of that like implied oh. in the words. Like what do you power. call your team members? So so sometimes you, you could not be self aware of stuff, and they're picking up what you're not putting down it frequently especially if you words that other people perceive as condescending i'm with you sometimes they don't know they perceive them as condescending though that that's another that's true. one too. a lot of people are not emotionally intelligent but they will still pick up on vibes where we're not now let's just get back to where we were at with he's just now he just is throwing the towel in. he's ready to just give up on everything and on life after you just blew his mind i see a mind no i love it i love everything you're doing this is super exciting i what's um what i i guess what's like what's your five-year vision i know now now he's like what's your five-year vision he's like trying to hire you now he's like wait let me go back to the basic question liz you just you can come, you can work remote. All right, no, no, no. You don't have to work here. Real question, though. No, no, here's the real question. All right, it's not even about, because you were talking about success, and I want to go back to that. Yeah, I so guess what's the, the measurement? What's success? the measurement of success? Why do you say it's not about the journey? And, or well, what? I don't think that success that, but... is not about the journey. I think that when people think of success, they think about the destination. Like, where are you? What's not the how ultimate did you destination? There, right? What's your ultimate destination? That's what I want to know. So effectively, I want to keep spinning up innovative concepts and models, probably one every three to five years. Uh, work on it, make it successful, and then uh, hand it off to a new CEO and come in as just the board of directors, owner, founder, advisor. I I aspire to do nothing more than I'm doing now, but I don't think that's possible. No, I no, think we when need I to work on like a strategy goal session with you. No, no, I feel no, like no. there's I more. I think I think Scott no, 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 no. should join Nucleus. I, I think they've goals. got a lot. To no, 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 no. that's um, never yeah. going to happen. What I'm What's... telling you is, some people have these really big aspirational goals, like they want to do something really big, and like you're never going to fucking do that. When I say I want to, my aspiration is to just stay where I'm at and be steady. That's never going to fucking happen. I'm throwing my hands in the air if I even say that. I would love that. I would like to be able to stay still, but I can't. I don't think that's an unreasonable goal. I think I I think about you're confused by like, that. No, I well I think since like no, I'm talking about Liz. Success, are you, like like some people are motivated like they always want to do something new and better and stuff, and a lot of people like just are happy doing what they do. I don't think I any think are like that. You it's hard to be an entrepreneur like that. But there's a lot of our team members and and you're that feel that way, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. The world needs that, actually. Yeah, it's a, the world needs way more of that than they need of us. I we need a lot more able- doers than we need a lot more in, like visionaries. Yeah, well, the, we don't have that many visionaries, but I want to be able to keep doing 
like one thing and not have my hands in a bunch of different areas. And that's what I've finally been able to do. That's, I, I think that's my, why I might be puzzled. I want to keep doing this and doing this right, whatever it is, whatever the fuck you want to call it. But I have a tendency to turn right and then everybody turns right or turn left and then everybody turns left. So you're able no, to. I guess, well, you're Liz, that's a right. good question. How do you like, how do you like monitor, I guess, stop yourself from like going too crazy? Like oh, you have yeah. all these ideas all the time and like, how do you just not. Which ones, which ones make it? The, the ones that I can model out to be actually self-sustaining and relatively profitable uh, for lift that I can do, right? So that's, those are the deciding factors. Like if I need a million dollars to start a concept, I'm not going to do it right now. I don't feel like fundraising again at the moment. Like it's just a pain in the ass. But how do I stop myself from doing it all at once is I know I cannot be effective at that. I've tried. There was one year I started four companies in the same year. And my husband told me if I ever did that again, he would divorce me. And he made <laughs> me like sign paperwork saying I wouldn't start a company for at least two years. Um, really? Is he I, Jewish too? Promise. He is not actually. That's um, a very Jewish thing to do, make you sign contracts. <laughs> He like down is like a promise. He's like, you promise not to start any new companies for two years, which I didn't. I made it through the whole two-year period, kind of. My business partner started a new company that I wasn't technically on until the first of the following year, so I didn't violate that like one. Down to technicality in the contract, <laughs> like good, like anybody would. Yeah. Yeah, but no. And then Melissa, my current business partner, and I very frequently talk about like what's next and how do we get there what what are we doing strategically to get to the place that we want to be in to grow is like whatever main integrator? yeah you're, she you're... is my business soulmate more so than just business partner and that she gets it and is so aligned in everything that matters that we work incredibly well and we build things very quickly together how long how long have you two been working together so she officially came on as a partner in 2016, but I've known her for 10, 12 years now. Okay. Cause I would say that my integrator, like he went to high school with me, but he was like friends with my brother. I've known him for a long time. And that's the kind of thing that you have to trust somebody to and have known them. And, and if you find the right person, then a lot of good things can happen. I just never, like I'm right at the point where I'm ready to let inter like integrator stuff happen, and that's. What do you mean let it happen? Well, I can't. A lot of times, I can't let go of something. I'm one of those, yeah. But I, but I want to be able to let go of it. I guess I'm not good enough at articulating the vision, which I'm better at now when when I actually have some time to go through stuff. But yeah, I mean, if I can articulate the vision and they get it, now I know I I'm done. Walk away, they're good, and I can move on to the next thing. But it's it takes a lot of time to get that 10% of the way there to be able to articulate it for them to be able to run it symbiotically. Like how often do you two have like talk or do you have like set up same page days, like shit like that? Or do yeah, you I mean, we have strategy meetings every Wednesday morning and we share an office so that we can talk about these things. We don't have to, but we share an office on purpose. We'll frequently write out like love notes to each other on our whiteboard about like strategy ideas or goals or specific things so that we remember to Why can't guys do that? Like I, I can never see two guys doing that. I, and I would like to, but I don't it's think- It's a business why. love note. It's like, 
I want to buy sex robots and build a brothel in Las Vegas. Yeah. Okay. Like, let's put that on the list for sometime in the future. That's the type of like. At some point, this is on our ideas board. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that one was Melissa's idea the other day, especially like, well, that's not even true. It was like two years ago that she had this idea. She wanted to import like high-end Japanese sex robots and like build a brothel around it, which like is actually a really good idea. And this year probably would have done famously, but. Would have done famously. (laughs) It still will though. It still is a good idea. Yeah, totally. Um, Uh, It is a niche. It's a niche. For sure. It is. You know, be the first wave of sex robots in the US. That was what she was really into for a while. There's other ones though. Lots of really terrible business ideas, but lots of really good ones too. Yeah. Well that's that's the other thing about ideas. Most of them are terrible. Yeah, he's he's gonna write this. Well, I think we need to wrap it up because we're at ninety minutes. Yeah. And Liz probably has stuff to do other than talk to us. She's got four four other businesses. Yeah. So so let's end with we had a very good Question. sponsor today, though. I do think, yeah. <laughs> an, an unpaid sponsor. Using that word sponsor and it's making me nervous. Yeah. Like. All right. No, no, no. Actually, so staff and sponsor. I got to get rid of all the S words. Don't say Scott. Don't say staff. Don't say sponsor. That's not an S word. Subject. Is that better? Are you our subject? Oh, shit. Sponsor? Right. Shit. All right. Um. That's a good name. I bet that was for you. It matches uh, your title. Uh, so So the pe- for the people who are listening, which is probably my grandma and some random I guy don't, tweet. I don't, I don't uh, know. Hi grandma. <laughs> she's a big fan. Uh, what leave us on what for someone who's <laughs> thinking about going out on their own, leave one imparting wisdom to them before we sign off find your vagina of amazingness that's perfect high rock accounting and 12 other things tell us where we can find you on the internet if they want to get in touch actually with- or don't even say anything if you could care less about that find me on twitter at lizzie norma perfect liz this has been awesome i'm sorry you had to deal with scott <laughs> it's my pleasure my <laughs> we have our first sponsor Who's our sponsor? Oh, did you already start? We do have a sponsor this week, and I want to do... Do we have a sponsor, or is this a lie? Are we making money on this yet? Can you... I got a little interrupted with Aria, but I actually had the script that was given to me. You'll you get to talk in about three about. minutes, so just... Oh, I'm that's fine. Right. I'm going to go get a snack and come back. Does that work? Yeah, you can do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah cool. All right. tequila behind you. You might need some in about five minutes. All right. I lost the train. What are we talking about? Yeah, I know. So it's kind of normal. See, this is where, yeah, stop the, stop the train if you get Scott, lost. what is your point where we have a guest? Why don't we, why don't we talk to our guest? Okay. We have somebody from there that is going to explain what Nucleus is. Oh, I didn't know I, I was sponsoring I have a much better way of delivering <laughs> okay, that. This is not an actual sponsor. it better. No, no, no. I legit, I had something written down and I don't know where it is. So right now my head's somewhere else. Here's our first sponsor. Oh, I, well, considering this is just being thrown at me from a sponsorship perspective, I'm going to have to think about that one and get back to you once I hear like a few sample episodes. (laughs) After two and a half minutes of incoherent Scott speaking, tell us what it is. Hey, Liz, why don't you introduce yourself?